Our scripture lesson today comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Well, good morning, church, and welcome to those online. Hello to you as well, and thanks for joining with us, as well as those that will watch this later. Thank you for being in worship with us here today. Well, you probably woke up this morning, got out your bulletin, and I know the first thing you always do is look at that sermon title and make sure you want to be here today. And I want to congratulate you for that stuck through it that didn't say, you know what, I'm going to leave as quickly as I can out the back door because the words of this sermon title this morning was words from a pessimist, which you probably thought, oh, goody, yay. But don't worry, we're going to have some fun today. It doesn't sound nearly as bad as maybe the title makes it sound here today. As we do get started, let's offer these words of, uh, of prayer together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, of course, you all have heard these words before, that there are certain people in the world, and that some people see the world with glass half empty. Some people see the world with glass half full. And of course, we call them the optimist, the pessimist. And then, of course, some people like to throw in the realist here today. So we're going to take a quick poll of Groveport United Methodist Church. I'm going to ask you to self-identify yourself. You have to put yourself in one of these three camps. Are you an optimist, which is you see the world as the glass half full? Are you the, the realist that you say, well, it's 50-50? It's or do you say that you're a pessimist and that you are a glass half empty kind of person? Ready? All right. So all the optimists in the church here today, raise your hand. Okay, okay, okay. All the realists in the church, let's raise your hand. Okay. How about you pessimists? Come on, pessimists. Raise your hand. No one. Okay, we got one. Okay, okay, we got one. Now, here's the deal. For everybody who has a spouse or a parent in the room, raise your hand if they just lied and you're calling them out. My, my, oh, my, no, no, no. I'm gonna, she's not going to throw me under the bus. No, I thought you were going to raise your hand for me. So, I thought, okay. That's... Oh, my wife didn't throw me under the bus. I appreciate that, wife. Thank you so much. Well, of course, as you know, there's optimist, realist, and it looked to me like you optimist won in the church. It was a close second with the realist, but unfortunately, the pessimist in the room, you got more to be pessimistic about because apparently you're surrounded by optimistic people here today. But of course, there's that idea, right? That glass half empty, glass half full kind of thing. And of course, it's always interplays and different dynamics. I asked my wife last night because we have a running joke that I'm always the pessimist, she's always the optimist in our family. And so whenever a new idea comes around, Kelly's like, yeah, let's go do it. And I'm like, well, let's think about like these few things that we gotta iron out before we get excited about it. And so, you know, I take more of the pessimist role. And so I asked her last night, I said, okay, out of all the times we've con had conversation, what is one that you remember very well where, you know, you, you thought you, you called me out as being a pessimist? She said, oh, I remember very distinctly that there was this one time where you, we were doing something, I don't even remember what it was, but I said it wrong. I told you that you were being a glass half full. At which point I called her out and said, well, don't you mean glass half empty? And she got even madder because in that moment she got so mad because of course uh, I was being a pessimist and then of course I had to be pessimistic about being pessimistic at that time. 
And so, of course, uh, that happened in that day. But we all, in some manner, we're really all of these, right? There's no true idea that you are always an optimist or always a pessimist or always, of course, someone in the middle of the realist. There's no such thing. All of us take on these different roles, different points, and different items in our life as we go through it. But it is interesting to think that that idea of, of looking at the world, of having hope, or is it not so hopeful, or is it kind of mixed bag, you know, as you go about life, that people in the Bible experience the same thing. And as, as great as some of the, the scriptures are about being super optimistic, there are other scriptures that are like, oh, doomsday is coming, right? And there are other scriptures, of course, that paint life kind of in between with half and half. And so I really recently, you know, every now and then I do something, try to read the Bible in a different way or just kind of understand it differently. And there's a book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. Now, most of you know this book because you've heard it quoted many different times, and probably the most famous of which is there's a time for everything, right? Every season turned. You know, you can't help but sing it, right, when it comes up. But there's a time for everything, right? And there's a time to live and a time to die, a time to sow and a time to reap. And it goes on and on and on. You've heard that time and time again in our, in our culture and in our world. Or possibly another famous quotation from Ecclesiastes is that famous uh, the, uh, accord of three strands is hard to break. You see maybe at a wedding where, you know, it represents two people and then God being in their life and they kind of tie off maybe a little knot or something, make a little braid, remember the day in that middle of a service to remember that God is in their life and in their, their wedding. And, and those two are probably the biggest, but if you look at the rest of Ecclesiastes, you don't normally hear it preached or talked about that very much and because it is a Debbie Downer somewhat. I gotta be honest. For instance, and, and the reader, the, I'm not saying anything that the author would not like just gladly say to us here today because the first words from Ecclesiastes start like this. If you've never heard them before, it starts off kind of, you know, nice and anonymous. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. And then the first real words of the, the book goes meaningless meaningless says the teacher utterly meaningless everything is meaningless and you go wow this is going to be a fun book to read right and of course as you read through it there's this 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 thought as you go through it of someone who's experienced life and is thinking about the wisdom of what it means to live in this world and what it is and has discovered the utter meaninglessness of it and you go, that's in the Bible? It is in the Bible. After, as a matter of fact, it's absolutely in the Bible, in Ecclesiastes. Now, it is important to understand a couple different things as you get into this book. The first thing is to understand this, is they're writing it not from a point of the covenant of being in God's relationship. And as a matter of fact, as you read through it, there's very little words that talk about coming before God or being before God. There's very little said in 12 chapters about that. Most of it is really written from the standpoint of just life for every human being that comes across this earth. And as you come across it, apart from God, how do you experience it? What is the meaning you can find in it? And of course, he lets you off right at the, he lets the cat out of the bag right at the beginning where he says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, I told you I like to read the scripture in, in different unique ways. So I tried to do something that I've never tried before. I tried to read Ecclesiastes as an optimist and look for the optimism in Ecclesiastes. And so for 12 chapters, I, I recently did this and, uh, you know, as I came across it, I started thinking about life and how the wisdom of the scriptures teaches us about world really apart from God and what there is to find in it. And the first thing I would say is that as wisdom, 
is found in the world, really the first few chapters set up the whole rest of the book where he goes through kind of item by item of all the different things that people try to find meaning in and people try to find worth in and to find the meaningless of meaning, meaningfulness of life that is of different things. So for instance, he even talks about how he as this wise teacher had pursued wisdom to understand it, to pursue how people experience folly and how people experience madness even. And he says at the end, you know what? It was kind of like chasing the wind. It was meaningless, as if you, you were chasing the wind. My uh, son and daughter both love bubbles, but my son especially. And I, whenever I need them just to run around, I'll go out in the backyard, and I'll get one of those bubble machines. I'll turn on the bubble machine, and I go sit and go, oh, because Jackson will sit there and just run around chasing bubbles for like 30 minutes on end. And then, of course, he gets tired to some degree, and then we can kind of go about the rest of our day. But Jackson, and that is my image of this, is Jackson chasing those bubbles. And, of course, I always buy the cheap bubbles, so they don't last very long and often pop before he even gets them. But he just, he's just running around, running around, running around, trying to catch the wind, if you will. And, of course, always thirsting and thirsting after the wind, but never quite, you can never catch the wind. It's meaningless. And of course, if you look through the rest of the, the first few chapters, there's all sorts of things. He talks about how he looked after and trying to find it in just pleasure. He looked for laughter and wine and other follies. He looked for projects and building things and houses and vineyards and gardens. He looked to accumulate silver and gold. He looked at having people around him, the worth of men and women, singers, or even his own personal harem. And he looked at it and he said, meaningless. All of this is meaningless. Words from a pessimist. So you guys are feeling good right now, right? You're feeling great. Oh, but he's not done. He's got 12 chapters more of it as he keeps going on and on and on. You know, as I thought about this coming from the optimistic point of view, it did make me think back on some of just life's experiences. I told you before that I grew up and moved around a bunch, but there was about a six-year window where I lived in a country club in, the, in, in Georgia, in Atlanta. And so it was a place called St. Ives. It's still there. It's St. Ives Country Club. You can go Google it if you want. Um, and it was, it was a pretty nice place to live, really nice place to live. And there were a whole bunch of people that lived in that neighborhood. Uh, if you guys are baseball fans, a man named Terry Pendleton, who uh, played for the Atlanta Braves, who was a famous third baseman. He actually was the MVP of 1991 in, in Major League Baseball. He lived three houses down from me, right? And not that we went over and talked to him all the time, but my biggest interaction with him was... Um, when my parents would go out of town, my brother was about seven years older than me, still living in the house. My sister had gone off to college. So my sister was like the responsible one. I was, you know, the young kid that just did, was just kind of floating around going with life. My brother was the party animal. And so every time my parents would go out of town, my brother would invite basically the whole entire high school over to our house and throw a party, right? And what I remember, my, my biggest thing about Terry Pendleton was I remember about him was coming over and calling the cops on my brother and the party that was going on while my parents were out of town. And so try to explain that, you know, not many people have that experience in life where an MVP major league baseball player is going to call the cops on you for your party. But my brother, he's achieved that. So good for him here today. But it was people like that that lived in it. And what I remember distinctly as I think back on it was how unhappy so many people were. It was like happiness was just this fleeting thing. I mean, these were people that had either came from money or very successful jobs or businesses or just, just had just things in their life fall their way to where they were living in a great neighborhood. And I remember just people would get upset about the silliest things. We lived um, in, a na in our house. We had this big, huge backyard that kind of just was a big slope, basically, was all it was. Great for sledding when in Georgia it like, like snowed every 12 years, you know, so it didn't really happen very often. But when it did, it was awesome. But it went down and it went to this kind of valley where it was a watershed. 
and there was a lake, and every time, you know, you got those big hurricanes that would come through and eventually make it up its way to Georgia, there would just be this huge deluge of water that would come through. And there were just huge rocks in this riverbed, like it's kind of, I call it riverbed, but it's, it's uh, just a creek bed, if you will, a drainage ditch. And I remember our neighbor once I came over to my, my parents and said, hey, we need to have a conversation about the backyard. And so he took us all down because our, our neighbors were, of course, together. And we took, he took us all down and went down and he explained to us that, oh, no, these rocks in the watershed are falling in too much. We need to make sure that they're nice and pristine and have this waterway. And my parents were like, you know, we're very nice and gentle about it. But then we got up there and I admitted to my parents, I said, mom and dad, I really like making splash puddles. And I've been taking some of those rocks and throwing them up in the air and making a big, huge splash. And I'm so sorry. And they go, we don't care. <laughs> it's a water drainage ditch. Like We don't care what the rocks look like in the water drainage ditch. But that was the type of thing that people would get upset over. And of course, I remember in those days of, you know, other friends that lived in the neighborhood and what their parents would often go through it was things like business deals gone wrong or maybe pride or maybe looking a shallow way on ethics eventually came up and bit them or just litigation of people with money and going after it and it just reminded me how much a folly of people that we look at in this world and say you know what they have it nice they have it great we're still not happy we're still finding life in some way meaningless in that and of course, our author today says even work and toil seem meaningless. Now, there is some optimism, right? So the biggest pessimist of Ecclesiastes as he's writing this, he actually does have one thing that he says is worthwhile. So he's talking really apart from God. Again, he says one more thing that's worthwhile, and it's in verse 224 in that section where he talks about, he says, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, or without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So if you've ever heard that term, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, a lot of that actually comes from some scriptures, specifically Isaiah and also in Ecclesiastes. It's kind of an amalgamation of them all. Of this idea of, you know what, you have this moment, and you've worked and toiled, and you have what you have. But instead of craving for more or to seeking more, is to sit back and to be content to look at the life and your toils and to think that you have food, to think that you have drink, and to take satisfaction in the work that you have, that this is a good thing. And then he goes back to, but life is meaningless. Meaningless, 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 right? And he goes on to spend the next bit of the whole book talking about how life is meaningless. But there is this brief moment of enjoy this moment. I'm always amazed at how life and, and just maybe the world we were created or created in, or maybe it's always been this way, or just maybe more modern days of constantly saying you need something else, right? And that mindset, if I just got this, or if I just had this, if I just, one more thing would just fall in line, or just one more thing, then I would be happy. And of course, our whole economy is really built on this idea of constantly pushing down on people or pushing people to buy more, to spend more, to get more, to go after more. Keep up with the Joneses to buy that new thing that's going to solve all your deals. And it Julian's fries, right? Does everything you absolutely need it to, and you'll never need anything else. And yet we always find that it's always lacking. There's a, a, a movie called Click. If you've never seen it, it's, it's worthwhile watching. It's a movie that Adam Sandler did. And in it, the whole premise of the movie is that he encounters a remote control. And the remote control can fast forward through life. And so all the boring parts of life... He can sit there and go, zip, and get to the good stuff, right? So every single time he's annoyed by someone, zip. 
Every single, single time he's bored. Zip. Every single time there's something going on he doesn't want to be part of. Zip. And, he, and it kind of, the whole movie basically is the idea about just fast forwarding through life and only getting to the good parts. So those parts that we really enjoy. And of course, what he finds by the end of it is that his whole life is gone. And he missed it. It was right there in front of him the whole entire time. And he refused to just slow down and enjoy all that was in that moment. And of course, the movie calls us to all consider our own lives. And even those parts where we feel like we're bored or those parts that we feel like aren't the best, to slow down and see even the goodness in those moments. One of the things, of course, COVID made us do, of course, was slow down. You know, as the world continues to get back to where we were, one of the things I hope that doesn't change is that the idea of slowing down, the idea of stopping and being thankful in those moments, being content with what we have in those moments, is what sometimes we need to do and do more of in our world. But the writer of Ecclesiastes, essentially, when you read it, the word that's presented to us is that apart from God, that's the best you got. That's it. When you accumulate all the things of the world and think about all the experiences you can possibly have, the best you can do apart from God is just sit back, enjoy what you got, be thankful for it, and that's as good as you get. Of course, our author here today knew God was in the covenant relationship of the people of God. And so he, he at the very end of the book, reminds us these words, which really, if you think about the whole rest of the book, seem really kind of odd because he hasn't talked about it very much at all. But he gets to the very end of the book and he says those words we heard in Scripture. No, all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or it is evil. So the writer of Ecclesiastes ends his book with, hey, pointing to you to something else. You know what's even better than that? Fear God. He doesn't lay it all out there, but he just says, fear God. Now, of course, we know, as you look at the book, Ecclesiastes, probably the overarching, one of the overarching themes is this, is that death, puts everything into perspective, right? He talks about it. You can accumulate wealth, but you don't get to take it with you. You can accumulate all the pride and all the, the glory that you can attain, but you don't get to take it with you. You can accumulate laughter, wine, and folly, and projects, and houses, and vineyards, and men and women that come and fill your life with goodness and, and make you jealous or other people jealous of you, but you don't get to take any of it with you. It's the great equalizer. But of course, if we fear God, the promise in Jesus Christ, where in Ecclesiastes, death puts everything in perspective, the work of Jesus Christ changes that. Instead of death putting everything into perspective, Jesus makes death irrelevant. Just think about the power of that. That the wisest person apart from that saying, here's how you live apart from God, the best thing you can remember is death conquers everything, so just enjoy what you got when you can. That's the best you can hope for. But the rest of the scriptures teach us the glory of God, that the fear of God and what God is up to and the things that he's planned to do is not that death has the final say, but that death becomes irrelevant. That through the cross and the empty tomb, there's something much, much more than being the pessimist. The Ecclesiastes would remind us this world is apart from God. As we're here today, we can take hope 
We don't have to stay in Ecclesiastes and saying life is meaningless, everything is chasing the wind. If we're here today and hear God's word and hear his promise and receive it, God can make every single moment of our life matter. Matter for eternity. And that God can make every single thing that would bring us joy or that we're pointing to making us joy that doesn't bring us joy can make those things that are eternal true in our hearts. Our family, our friendship, of honoring God, of building the kingdom of God that will come and reign and last forever, of being filled with joy because of the goodness of God filling our hearts. All those things are available here and now if we would receive it. Let us pray. Lord, as we're here today, we come as a people. And God, if we're truly honest, we look at this world and there's so many things to be hopeful for. There's so many things to just know that it's kind of both and, and there's so many things, Lord, that we look at and we go, oh, there are bad days ahead. But Lord, as we're here today, we take these words of wisdom from Ecclesiastes to remind ourselves that if we're not searching for you, if we're not building your kingdom, if we're not surrendering to your will and living the life you've called us to, we end up with only meaninglessness. And the best we can do is just enjoy what we have. But Lord, the great news is that that's not the end story, that the great news, Lord, is that you have given us the Holy Spirit, your holy church, your communion of saints. You've given us all sorts of blessings, far and wide. The blessings, Lord, that don't end at the end of death, but go on for eternity. So Lord, we cling to you here again today. Lord, give us wisdom, give us power, and give us, Lord, the strength to each and every day choose eternity over the here and now. That, God, we would not choose things that blow away in the wind, but that stand firm by your hand. We pray all this in Jesus' name.